0: May God give us understanding in this preaching of the word that we'll receive today. Gonna have a word of prayer, and just before prayer, I'd just like to introduce our speaker who will come right after the choir's song. Um, It was about two years ago from today. Our nation was in an uproar. We are in the middle of the COVID pandemic and our reaction to it and also going on along that time was the social unrest that grew up uh, along with the uh, George Floyd incident. And our city experienced a lot of trouble as a result of that. But it was at that time in 2020, around that time that um, Kirk called me. I had known Kirk from our time together in the Simeon Trust uh, 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 seminars that we have attended for several years. Each year we have one in uh, late January or early February. We've been attending those for several years, so i i'd seen him and spoken to him on several occasions. But we had, he had actually contacted me for the sake of us getting together as churches to have what we called at the time a prayer walk. And many of you participated in that prayer walk that we held right here in our city on third, probably third in Hadley, Locust in that area. And uh, it was uh, the two churches that that started it. Other churches were invited and and were present as well. But it was in that time, it wasn't a protest. uh, It wasn't activism. It was simply believers coming together, uniting for prayer, recognizing that our community needed that unity, and that prayer that we provided. It was a it was a, a, a beautiful picture. It was a church from the south side of Milwaukee and a church from the north side of Milwaukee, a church that was prominently uh, 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 white and one that was mostly black. The two churches coming together and joining in an effort. And since that time, we have Grown to know each other, to fellowship together, to be in a uh, pastor's partnership together. We meet once a month right here at Sweet Communion. We've shared pulpits together. We did so last year. At that time, Dan Allen, co-pastor there, uh, came here to preach, and I was uh, had the opportunity to preach there at Crossway. And uh, we've uh, shared our building together as well. So we've had a number of meaning meaningful uh, contacts and interactions together, and I praise God for that. So I'm thankful for Kirk. I understand we have a couple things in common. Um, he's a little younger than me, but um, we went to the same school. We both attended Maranatha uh, Baptist Bible College and Seminary, uh, and so um, just just neat to have that in common. Uh, I could almost say we were both kicked out of the same school, but I don't know about Kirk, but I wasn't kicked out until after I graduated, so earned that distinction. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you more about that later. Also, uh, Kirk was, um, kind of grew up in, uh, was it Lake Drive Baptist? Was that, I mentioned that because I know some people are familiar with that and, and uh, have, have been a part of that. So you have that in common with Kirk as well. So. Praise God for you, Kirk. We're glad to have you come and you have your family here. Thankful for you being here and thankful for that the Lord has brought us together, connected us together for the gospel's sake. And after uh, the prayer and the choir song, we welcome you to come and speak God's word to us. Let's bow now in a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time. We thank you for what you are doing. We thank you... Um, For this church, we thank you for Crossway. We do pray for Brian and Heidi as they minister there today. We pray for Kirk as he comes and ministers here today. Word will be presented. We pray that your Holy Spirit will just give peace and power to the presentation of your word and that we might receive your word. Receive it with thanksgiving, anxious physically. I pray for Chad in the hospital right now that you'll watch over him and be with him. We pray for Ronald and thanking you, Lord, that you just continue to watch over and keep him. We thank you for the Dicks, both uh, Bill and Bonnie are here today. What a blessing it is to see them and to have them here. We pray for their continued blessing and recovery. Um, Lord, I pray for uh, Mickey's son, son Jay, Lord. We pray, Lord, you to watch over, keep, and uh, protect him, Lord. We pray for his salvation and for his healing, Lord. Um, we would pray for um, um, just others that I may not mention, Lord, who are, are struggling in, in physical ways or even in other ways, that you would be um, make yourself known as their Lord and as their Savior. They might come and trust in you. No matter what we go through, that we might put our trust in you and show through our uh, faithfulness and living that, you have impacted our lives, and you are our Lord, and that you are our Savior. We ask that you would bless the preaching of your word now as we give way, um, that you would just use it for your glory. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Come um, at this time.
1: I got so caught up in that I almost forgot to come forward. Well, thank you for having me here. Um, I could just repeat everything that Brian said. Uh, I feel the same way. So, we will be in Acts seventeen. Um, in God's providence, you guys have been going through the book yourself, and so we will. Uh, maybe uh, you know, in God's providence, He obviously He always intended this, but maybe the the point was to to then highlight this passage one more time as particularly important. Um, We trust what God will do through his word this morning. Um, My wife Annie is with me this morning, as are my kids, and uh, when I was planning on proposing to my wife over 10 years ago now, um, I pretty much knew what she was going to say. Uh, we, you know, we had had the conversations, we kind of knew where things were heading. Uh, maybe you had that experience if you're married, and you're, you're getting to the point of proposing. You kind of know, it's, it's, in some ways it's a formality, right? However, her father-in-law, or my father-in-law, her father, is a bit of an interesting uh, individual, and he's very unpredictable, and I honestly had no idea what he was going to say when I asked him for Anne's hand in marriage. And so I was quite nervous. I remember I asked him while I was, like, cutting his hair, actually. So uh, it's like, you better say yes or I'm going to do something, you know. No. But I was quite nervous what he was going to say. Um, and I wonder sometimes if the reason that we don't evangelize is for a similar reason. We don't know exactly how people are going to respond to the message. I think that's one of the reasons we struggle to evangelize is a fear of how others will respond. Well, our passage today deals precisely with that sort of question, that issue, is how do we evangelize in light of the response that is likely to follow? As Brian was reading the passages, you'll notice that this passage sets up two cities. Thank you. Uh, I've titled the sermon, actually, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, Rejection versus Reception, And it it sets up these two cities, Thessalonica and Berea, sort of right against each other in order to cause us to consider their contrasting responses to the scriptural gospel. The accounts of the two cities are linked and we're meant to see them, uh, read them together. So you see that there are these Jews in Thessalonica, these unbelieving Jews who end up opposing Paul. And then they chase after Paul all the way to Berea to oppose him there as well. And so it's not that there are two separate accounts here, two unrelated cities, but we're supposed to read them together. They're connected by this opposition where the Jewish unbelievers chase Paul from one city to the next. And even the passage gives us indication that we're meant to read these two cities in connection to each other, contrasting the two. Look at verse 11 where it says, Now these Jews, that is the Bereans, They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. We're supposed to contrast the two. It's not simply that they were more noble, but more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. Maybe if you're on social media, on Twitter or Facebook, you ever find yourself scrolling through the news feed and you find two posts, like one right on top of the other, where it's just so uncanny how much they have to do with each other, but they're two unrelated posts, right? Um, But they happen to be talking about the same thing, maybe. That's sort of what we have going on here. Two cities that are talking about the same thing, except here it's not unintentional. It's not an accident. We're meant to read them together. And so there's other details that show this sort of comparison between the two. In both cities, Paul goes to the synagogue, you notice. In both cities, we get similar language that's used to describe those who respond in a believing way to Paul's message. You see they're they're called Greeks. There's this mention of high-standing women in both cases. It uses this language of not a few in both cities. And then in both cities, Paul also, also gets sent away by his fellow believers in order to escape opposition. So there's a lot of parallels. And on their own, we probably wouldn't make much of that. But when you compile them all together, we see that they add up. And so the accounts in these two cities are meant to stand together. But what exactly are we meant to be comparing between them then? Well, what Luke seems to be highlighting here is each town's contrasting response again to Paul's preaching of the gospel. Specific attention is given to how the cities respond to scripture, you'll notice. So look at verses uh, 2 and 3 with me. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them, notice, from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Okay, And some are persuaded, but then we get a violent rejection from most of them. And then look down now. Um, You'll notice then the reason, or sorry, the reason that's stated for why the Thessalonians then travel to Berea and oppose Paul in verse 13 is that when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So the reason they travel is the preaching of the Word. So the point of this comparison is then made explicit as we saw in verse 11 when Luke, our author, explains the point of the comparison. In verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Okay, how so though? How were they more noble? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so and many of them therefore believed. So we have rejection In mass by the Thessalonians, and we have reception by the Bereans, their response to the word. And so, this passage, these two accounts together, teach us this: I think, believer, do not be caught off guard. As the biblical gospel of Christ is preached, it will be both received and rejected. Don't be caught off guard, believer that as the biblical gospel of Christ is preached, it's going to be both be, be received by some and rejected by others. And Luke's original audience, the ones to whom he is writing here, they likely include folks who experienced mixed responses to their own sharing of the gospel, right? That as they share the gospel, they have some folks believe it and some folks reject it. And they need to hear a passage like this as well and know that folks will reject their message. And when they do so, it's not somehow a a signal of of failure or that something has gone wrong. Rather, this is the normal experience of those who herald the gospel. And so we've seen the main point of this passage. Now let's kind of dive into some of the contours, some of the, the features here. So on the one hand... We have the one response is that, is that the folks in Berea examine the scriptures and they do so eagerly and they believe. On the other hand, now let's look at the rejection. What does it look like for the Thessalonians who rejected? Well, they accuse the Christians, you'll notice, of turning the world upside down. Quote, turning the world upside down. Okay, Now, what was this accusation rooted in? You see verse 7 They accused the Christians of, quote, acting against the decrees of Caesar. How? Because they said that there was another king, Jesus. They were preaching another king, Jesus. In other words, they accused them of plotting insurrection or following some sort of alternative king. You see, the the Christians, they preached that Jesus was the Christ. That's just another name for Messiah. You see in verse 3 where Paul sought to prove to them that Jesus was, is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And Christ, or Messiah, if you know what that word means, it's a kingly title. That's a title for the king. It means that they were anointed, just as the kings in Israel were anointed. And so to call Jesus the Christ, to try to argue that he's the Messiah, as Paul was doing, that is to name Jesus as the true king. And so the charge against the believers here, that they were preaching an alternative king, is both... True and false. Of course, Christ really is the king, and Jesus' kingship really does challenge the authority of Caesar and all other rulers of this world, for that matter. For they are not the ultimate ruler of this world. The president is not the ultimate ruler of the world, kings are not the ultimate ruler of the world. And so they, we as Christians then, we do not give anyone our ultimate allegiance outside of Christ, right? And so in that sense, it is true. We are saying that Jesus is king and Caesar is not. And so no doubt the gospel does, in some sense, turn the world upside down, right? It, 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 it's just not necessarily the way that these folks were thinking, And so on the one hand, there is something true to their accusation, but on the other hand, it's also false. It's also based on a misunderstanding of Christ's kingdom, that Christ's kingdom, as he told Pilate, is not of this world. In other words, what he meant by that, he says, is that we don't take up arms and fight. We don't use the world's methods of kingdom advancement, that Jesus's kingdom is of a different nature. And likewise, it's methods of warfare are different. We don't seek to overthrow the government. Rather, our king tells us to submit to the government. We don't fight against flesh and blood, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. Rather, the crux of our battle is spiritual, even as our king's kingdom, of course, does have implications for all of life and society. And so Christianity is being misunderstood here in this passage. There's something true that it's based on, but it's a misunderstanding. And Christianity has always been misunderstood and falsely accused. We think of the early church. I don't know if you've heard this, but the early church, for instance, they were accused of being cannibals, of being atheists, and of committing incest. Think about why that might be. They were accused of being atheists because they rejected the Roman gods. So in the early church, they were confused. People thought people were confused about them. They thought that they were atheists. Or they accused them of cannibalism because they heard of this rite in which they eat a man's body and blood. Or they accused them of incest because it was a bunch of brothers and sisters who loved one another. Okay, there's these misunderstandings. And today we face the same sort of thing. I think particularly along the lines of sexual ethics and gender. Where at best we're seen as prudish, and at worst. And quite commonly, we're seen as bigoted or having sort of an irrational hate for other people. And so we see re- reception on the one hand, but rejection on the other. But what's really going on under the surface? What's going on under the surface when these folks reject the message? Well, ironically, even, you'll notice, even as they accuse the Christians of being dangerous to society, they're actually the ones who start the mob of rabble-rousers and set the city in the uproar. You notice that? They're saying the Christians are turning the world upside down. They're dangerous. And then they're the ones who start a mob in Thessalonica. And then as they make their way to Berea, they agitate and they, they stir up the crowds there as well. So if anyone's a threat to society, it's these guys. It's not the Christians. And they start mobs. I mean, they chase Paul down to the very next town. It gives us, there, there's an intensity just a, 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 ridiculous, a ridiculousness of, of the degree to which that they go, the extent to which they go to oppose Paul's message. This isn't just like a slight opposition, like we just disagree with you, Paul. They're going to chase him down to the next town. They're going to start mobs about it. It shows their persistence, even an irrational degree of their resistance, conveying how badly they will go, how far they will go to oppose the Bible's message. And so the reason we see why is it that they reject the message? Why is it that they go this far? Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. These are referring to the unbelieving Jews, of course. And this is a theme we see throughout the whole book of Acts. Maybe you've noticed it, that oftentimes the opposition has to do, and in the Gospels, the opposition to Jesus from the leaders who end up plotting to kill him, is due to jealousy. He's threatening their regime, their system, their authority. And so it highlights that their their motivations here for rejecting. It's jealousy. And this shows us the fact that when folks resist the gospel, when folks disbelieve the gospel, it's not merely, at least, an intellectual hurdle. It's not merely an intellectual problem. It is most foundationally a moral and spiritual problem. As Romans 1 says, we actually suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not merely that people find it difficult to believe the gospel. More fundamentally, it's that people don't want to believe the gospel. John Stott, uh, an Anglican preacher who's since passed away from England, uh, he has a a little book called Basic Christianity. Um, When I worked at the rescue mission, I would use it with the guys sometimes. And it's just a really great book to get introduced to Christianity. And in the beginning of that book, he talks about a conversation that he had with a young man, a young skeptic of Christianity. And John Stott said to him, Okay, If I were to answer all of your problems, all of your objections to Christianity, to your complete intellectual satisfaction, would you be willing to alter your manner of life? And the man smiled and blushed. Because no, his real problem was not intellectual, but moral. His intellectual objections were just a front for the underlying reality that he didn't want to believe in a God. He didn't want to believe that Jesus has had died and risen and was Lord of this universe. That would be far too inconvenient for what he wanted to, how he wanted to live his life. Or Tim Keller on social media recently posted, he said, when people tell me that once they were believing Christians, but now they have rejected it all, okay, that's a common thing people are deconstructing, so to say, from the faith and leaving Christianity. And Tim, Tim Keller says, when people do that, when they say they believed and now they don't, I often ask them, you know, after I listen to them closely, why they originally believed Jesus rose from the dead and now they've come to decide that somehow he didn't. In other words, the the, the veracity, the truthfulness of Christianity rests on facts, not feelings. It's not about, it's not just an intellectual reason why people reject it, in other words. It's a moral issue. They don't want to believe it. And so on the one hand, we have jealousy and this desire to reject the message. On the other hand, though, for those who do receive the message, what's going on under the surface for them? Well, it is a softening of their hearts that ultimately depends on God. And so as we share the gospel, we must rely on God to do that work. You'll notice in verse 4 that some were persuaded And the ESV says in our Bibles, it says that they were joined, were joined. It's passive, okay? Active would be like, I joined this. Passive is, I am joined, like it's being done to me, right? The word actually can mean this idea of being assigned to something. So who's doing the action? It's implied. God is the one doing the assigning. God is the one joining them, it's ultimately salvation and, 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 and us coming to faith in Christ is ultimately something that God works in us. And we see this all throughout the book of Acts, right? Where Luke, the author of Acts, has always been attributing people's conversion to God's activity. When people come to faith, it's God who did it. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, I'll, I'll just read these for us. It says, Those who received the word were added. God's the one doing it. They were added to the believing community, the church. Or in verse 47, the Lord Jesus, that is, added to the number of Christians, those who were being saved, passive. Or in chapter 11, verse 18, the Lord granted repentance to the Gentiles. Repentance is something that God grants us. Chapter 13, verse 48, uh, those who believed, Luke says, it says that they were appointed to eternal life. Or chapter 16, verse 14, the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to pay attention to what Paul was saying. And so again, we have a tale of two cities here and their contrasting responses to the biblical gospel. Those who reject it out of jealousy and a suppression of the truth and those who God works in their heart to cause them to see Christ for who he truly is and, and to believe. And so what do we take away from that? Again, what is, what, is, what is God seeking to communicate to us through Luke's writing here? Don't be caught off guard then, believer. That as the biblical gospel of Christ goes out just like it went out here, it will be both received and rejected just as it was here. This is what we expect. And think about it in light of the whole book, as you've been going through the whole book, Okay the whole book the book of acts is in really in many ways it's outlining the progress of the gospel remember acts chapter 1 verse 8 you will be my witnesses in jerusalem judea samaria and to the ends of the earth and the whole book isn't that sort of kind of creates a map for the whole book right it starts in jerusalem and then Stephen is killed. It goes, it goes to the surrounding areas, eventually into Samaria. And then it will eventually, by the end of the book, Paul will reach the ends of the earth, so to say. Rome, the, the full extent of the Roman Empire by the end of the book. And so the book of Acts is outlining the progress of the gospel throughout all these areas. Now, on the one hand we might then get the assumption that, well, that's just gonna, everything's going to go perfectly. Everyone's going to believe the gospel as it goes. But we would be wrong to assume that as the testimony goes out, it will be met then with universal acceptance. It will certainly prevail. That's what Jesus says. The gospel will be proclaimed. And it will certainly reach all peoples and all regions, but that's not to say it will be embraced by every single person. And a passage like this, I think, why does this passage exist? Why does God give us this passage? I think it exists to help us understand that rejection is a normal feature of what happens when the gospel is spread. It's not a cause for concern then as if something has gone wrong when people reject the gospel. No, this is par for the course. And so we see this even across the whole Bible, right? Right? that we see the rejection of God's message as a theme across the scriptures. Probably one of the most common or the, one of the best passages for this would be Isaiah 6. Oftentimes it gets brought up in maybe missions conferences. Here am I, send me. But where Isaiah sees the vision of God, right? And he says, who will go for us? Isaiah says, send me, Lord. But what does God actually commission Isaiah to do? He says, you're going to go and you're going to preach to people who don't actually listen, don't hear. They have ears that don't hear and eyes that don't see. And Jesus quotes this passage to uh, to basically define his own ministry. You know, the parable of the... Uh, sometimes it's called the parable of the soils or the parable of the seeds. However, you're familiar with that, where there's a sower who goes, goes out to sow and the, and the seeds land on different soils. In the, in, sandwiched in that parable... Jesus quotes the Isaiah 6 passage to explain why his preaching of the gospel is rejected. Why he is being rejected. Is it because something's gone wrong? Is something awry? No, this is, this is what is expected. And this is actually Paul in, at the very end of the book. Let's, we'll kind of spoiler alert, go to the end of the book of Acts and see how's it, how this thing ends. When Paul gets to Rome, finally, if you look at chapter 28, verse 27, Paul is quoting that passage. and He says, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. That even the rejection of the message by, predominantly so by the Jewish community, God actually uses that rejection in his plan to see the gospel then go out to be received by the Gentiles. And so this is, a very, this is just very much a part of the nature of what we expect in Christianity. We expect the message of Christianity to be rejected. We shouldn't be thrown off by that. And contrast this, for example, to the argument within Islam. Where in Islam, one of the arguments that Muslims will use to argue for Islam is that it is successful and that where it goes, it spreads. And oftentimes it does so by coercion or violence. But Christianity's fabric is entirely different. It is one of persuasion, not coercion. And in contrast, it's rather counterintuitive because we expect it to be rejected in many ways. Christianity expects rejection and that does not throw any shade on its truthfulness. The very Savior at the center, the very one at the center of our belief, Jesus Christ, he himself was rejected. Rejection is not some sort of uh, tangential thing to the Christian worldview. It's at the very heart of who we are as believers. We follow a rejected Messiah, the one at the very heart of the gospel message that Paul is preaching. Paul is, is rejected as he's preaching a message about a Messiah who is rejected. Jesus says that he will be rejected in the in the parable of the tenants of, of the vineyards. If you remember that parable where the, the, the owner of the vineyard, who represents God the Father, is sending different messengers to his vineyard, which represents Israel, and they kill the messengers, the prophets. But eventually he sends, I'll send my son, he says. And what do they do to the son? They kill him as well. And this is not an aberration from the plan of God. This actually fits right into the plan of God. As Isaiah 53 says, he, prophesying of Christ, was despised and rejected by men. And his rejection meant our salvation. Verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. You notice the substitution language. He was pierced for our transgression. In the catechism we use at our church, the New City Catechism, like we ask our, our children, for example, did Jesus die because he had his own sins? No, he died for our sins. His death was paying the price for my redemption and for the redemption of all those who trust in him. And none of this then was a mistake. It was actually part of God's plan that even as we see Paul preaching in this passage here, he talks about, he, he's actually proving that, the, that Jesus is the Christ and that the Christ would suffer. That's one of the things he was trying to prove to them is that the Christ was to suffer and die. And this same rejection continues then throughout the history as Christ is presented to people in the gospel. As Christ is then preached to people. This gospel, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, it's an aroma of what? Of life to some And it's an aroma of death to others. Jesus, as Psalm 118 says, is the stone that the builders rejected. But God took that rejected stone and he made it the cornerstone of his temple, the church. And so don't be caught off guard, believers. It's not as though something has gone wrong when our message is rejected. This rejection of the preached gospel is not an aberration in God's plan. It's no more an aberration than was the very rejection of Christ an aberration in God's plan. Both are within his providence and they serve his purpose as the gospel goes forward. And so we preach the gospel, we share the gospel, expecting it to both be accepted and rejected. And so why do we need this passage? What is God seeking to get done through this passage in our lives and the life of this church, what do we do? We need what need do we have that God is addressing here? Well, I have three that I would like to share with you this morning. First is I think that this passage helps set our expectations. It helps us anticipate mixed responses in our evangelism. That as we share the gospel, we anticipate and we expect a mixed response of reception and rejection. And so we are confident that nonetheless we are unwavering in our evangelism regardless of the response. You guys are talking about your own evangelistic program that you guys have going going on. That when you go, you're not going to be uh, thrown off when your message is rejected. We expect that. We don't let it shake us. We don't let the pressures of opposition then tempt us either to compromise our message. We are confident and unwavering in our giving witness to the gospel on the basis of God's word, despite rejection or its reception. And so it's worth asking yourself just internally, why don't I share the gospel as much as I ought to? Assuming that that's something that you struggle with, why is that the case? And how does a passage like this then help me address some of that? Charles Bridges, uh, another Anglican I'm quoting here, uh, he's a, he, a, a Puritan, so from a ways back. He wrote a book called The Christian Ministry, which is about pastoral ministry. We actually spent some time looking at that book in our pastor's fellowship. Um, and he has a section in, in that book called The Trials and Difficulties of Christian Ministry. And he says this uh, Bridges, he, he, he talks about how we face a twofold temptation. On the one hand, we can face a temptation from the world's opposition. And on the other hand, though, he says, I think this is interesting, we can also face a temptation from the world's flattery, he calls it. This draw to be liked and to have the world's approval. In both cases, we face a temptation to pull back on our evangelism, to compromise it either because we don't want to be opposed or because we want to be liked and accepted. And we can face a temptation then to compromise the message of what we're saying in our evangelism. And so how do I find myself maybe contorting my Christian witness in order to gain acceptance or avoid opposition? You see, sometimes I think we fall prey to this sort of thinking that if we we face opposition or ridicule, then we think that something's gone terribly wrong. We say, God, that's not right. I shouldn't be treated like that. You see, we want the benefits of Christ's cross without having to bear our own cross. And that's not how this is supposed to go, right? We think, hey, I shouldn't have to face opposition. We need to learn, increasingly so though, to expect to be rejected, to expect resistance in our mission. In fact, we need to become okay as Christians with being weird in the eyes of friends, families, and coworkers. If we're ever to be faithful, we're simultaneously citizens and foreigners in our own society. And if we are to live faithfully, that will inevitably result in an experience of disconnect between us and others. You see, the problem is, is if if we so desire the world's approval, then when they shame and reject us for our message, it's going to wreck us. Like If we put that on a pedestal, how they, how they see us, how they view us, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mess us up. We're going to be distraught. Instead of saying, oh yeah, well that's, that's to be expected, that's normal. It'll become a point of deep existential crisis for us. And so some of our paralysis, our inhibition to share the gospel may, I think, be in part due to this, that we're so intimidated can I say maybe embarrassed or ashamed by the prospect of being rejected. But friends, this is the very call of the faithful Christian in a foreign world. And we do not seek the approval of this world, we seek the approval of Christ. And so may we recover something of the resolve of Paul. Remember in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to save everyone who believes. The second the way that I think this helps us is in thinking about mission, that it gives us confidence that the mission will succeed. A passage like this bolsters our witness as we gain increased confidence in the gospel's success, notwithstanding how any particular individual responds to it. And as we saw above, as we already have seen, that God is the one who softens a softens heart. He's the one who guarantees its success. As Paul was in Corinth, I don't know if you got to chapter 18 yet, but when Paul was in Corinth, you remember the Lord appeared to Paul in a night vision and he said, Paul, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of how people will respond to you, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. We know that there will be people who do receive the gospel. God has his own. His sheep will hear his voice. And so we go on preaching the gospel, notwithstanding rejection, but because there are those who will believe. The gospel will succeed. We see this throughout the book of Acts. We get these sort of summary statements throughout the book where the word of God increases and it prevails. That's the message of the book, is the word of God going forward and succeeding mightily despite its rejection by some. And so the mission of God will go forward. His word will prevail regardless, even through, even by means of, even using its rejection and opposition. And then my last charge for you this morning is, is an evangelistic one, is to ask you the question of what is your own response to the gospel. Do you, are you responding to the gospel more like the Thessalonians or more like the Bereans? This passage, of course, encourages us to share the gospel, as Paul was, but it also encourages us to think how we are responding to that gospel. It should cause us to consider, what's my own response? And the gospel message is not like, oftentimes it gets treated today, like one dish on a buffet table of religious options. You know, when I was in college, I don't know when you were there, Brian, but there was, in the cafeteria, there was always tons of different food options laid out. And people can kind of treat religious uh, beliefs that way nowadays. Like as long as it works for you, as long as, it, as long as you like it, that's fine. It's sort of like there's pizza over on this part of the buffet, but you can have macaroni and cheese over here. That's not what Christianity claims to be. It doesn't claim for itself to be just one option among many. Simply choose what works for you. The gospel, actually faith in the Bible, is often, oftentimes called obedience. The obedience of faith. Because it's a summons. We're commanded to obey. We're commanded to believe on Jesus. There is no other salvation outside of him. Christ is God's appointed cornerstone. Citing that Psalm 118 passage we already mentioned, Peter says, there is no other name given by God under heaven by which we can be saved. And so that is our, that is our hope for you. If you are here today and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, that you would talk to myself, you'd talk to Pastor Brian or any of the deacons here and learn more about what it means to place your faith in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning and I ask that you would work mightily, that your spirit would be at work as the word has gone forth and that you would cause it to penetrate into our hearts, into our minds and do a transforming work. I pray that your word would serve to build up this congregation so that as they seek to share the gospel um, in their different areas of influence, that they would do so boldly, that they would do so with clarity, and that people would believe that you'd help this church grow by seeing more people become followers of your son, and you'd help them to uh, grow as maturing followers of him as well. Amen. So at this time, uh, everyone is dismissed. We thank you for coming here today, this morning.